Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Sif Heider, the founder of Array. I'm a wellness entrepreneur and digital creator, and this is my show, The Dream Bigger Podcast. Listen, I love dreaming big, but you know what I love more? Actually having the resources to make those big dreams happen. And hey, dreams can sometimes be private jets, but other times they can look a little something like having the best skin of your damn life or starting a successful business or delving into spirituality. So on this podcast, I chat with experts and thought leaders from different fields about their tips and tricks on doing exactly that. Remember to subscribe. We drop new episodes every Tuesday. So see you then. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole Bennett. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Megan and Sophia, we are so, so happy to have you on the Puberty Podcast. Megan Leahy is a parenting columnist at the Washington Post and a mom to three daughters. She has a bachelor's degree in English and secondary education and a master's degree in school counseling. She's a certified parent coach and a practicing Zen Buddhist. She's incredibly funny, has a side passion of doing fabulous makeup. And if that's not enough, she is the author of the recently released book, Parenting Outside the Lines, Tap Into Your Wisdom and Connect with Your Child. Megan lives with her family outside of Washington, D.C., and one of those kids, Sophia, is here with her today. Hi, Sophia. You can say hi back. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Teenagers are my favorite. Sophia, you and I are going to do our own podcast together where we just say hi to each other over and over again. (laughs) Okay. Sophia is Megan's eldest daughter. She is a full-time student finishing up her last year of high school. I feel like I'm in like Miss America where I'm like introducing. Sophia has many roles, including older sister and leader in her school community. And fun fact, she owns many, 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 many gray sweatshirts. And I can completely relate to that because I think my house is being swallowed by gray sweatshirts. We're super psyched to have you both here. Cara and I are huge admirers, Megan, of your work and your writing. And Sophia, we are just huge admirers of you as a human being. You are our first teenager. By yourself. 
I without other teenagers. Who is here because of their own cred. And you have, have a lot of cred that you bring to this episode. And I think <laughs> an incredible story to tell about your path through puberty. So maybe we start there. Can, you know, looking back on your adolescence, can you describe your experience in puberty and, and tell your story? Yeah. So my mom started the puberty talks with me very early. Like when I was like seven or eight, she started giving me books and like teaching me all about like periods and like bodily anatomy and all those different things. She was always very open about it and would always discuss it with my sisters and I, but she really started talking to me about it when I was like seven or eight. And then when I was 13, I actually found out, was I 13 or 12? I was 13. Mm-hmm. It was your yeah, eighth grade year. Yeah, you were 13. Yeah. I was 13 and I found out that I actually do not have a uterus. So all of that puberty education kind of, it wasn't, didn't really do everything. So I don't have a uterus. And so therefore I do not have periods. And so my puberty journey kind of changed after that because it was not your stereotypical, okay, she's going to get her period and then I'll help her like figure out how tampons work. And I had all the books. So like I knew what all of it was, but I've never done it myself or I never will have to, but yeah. Can you share a little bit for adults who are listening, who are wondering how will I know if this is going to be my kid's path? Can you share a little bit about what was it when you were in eighth grade that landed you at your doctor's office and that landed you with that? I don't want to call it a diagnosis, but you know, with that description, I would say. Yeah. So it was not a normal experience at all. I was having a sleepover with my friend one night and I had really bad pains in my side, which normally you would think is like appendicitis or cramps or something else, but they were so bad. I couldn't walk and I couldn't stand up. So my mom decided to take me to the emergency room and I spent all day at two different hospitals in their emergency room getting tested. And then at one point they were doing an ultrasound on my stomach and they were like, we can't find her uterus like, or her ovaries or anything. And my mom was like, oh, And it's not common where like you grow up and then you're like, "Hmm, I wonder if I have a uterus or not, but it occurs more than you think. Like I know a good amount of people who have it, but so it's not something that most people think about, but it was a very long process to figure out like what exactly was going on because even so many doctors don't know about it and don't know that it exists. Like the amount of times I've been to the children's hospital here in DC and they've been like, what are you in for? And I'm like, oh, I'm getting an ultrasound, I don't have a uterus. And they're, they turn around, they're like, what? And these people have been doctors for 20, 30, 40 years. So Megan, what was that like for you? You take your 13 year old kid and you're like, oh, all right, well, she's probably got appendicitis. This is going to suck. And then all of a sudden they're like, mom, because they always call us mom in the doctor's office, right? We don't have a name. We're mom. Yeah. We can't find her uterus. Yeah. It was like a lot worse than that. It was well, obviously pre-COVID, it was five years ago. And we went to the hospital and they were ultrasounding her and ultrasounding her and ultrasounding her. And I'm sitting there like, this idiot doesn't know what they're doing. Like, I have not even the B string. I have like the F string. It was a Sunday. I'm like, the hell's going on, right? So I'm getting pissed. 
And they bring us back. And by this time, they had started giving her, they had a port in your arm, right? Yeah, they were giving me morphine because the pain was so bad. Mm. Yeah. And they sat us down and they were like, we can't find a lot of organs. And I was like, I said, are you effing kidding me? Is this a joke? And they said, no, we can't find a lot of organs. We're not calling an ambulance, but you already have a spot at Children's Hospital. They wrapped up her arm with the port still in it, unhooked the stuff, and we had to drive to Children's. Mm. So that was a couple hours at one hospital. Then we go to Children's where the day just unfolded as more and more doctors came in and didn't know. And they kept giving her more and more painkillers because they kept ultrasounding her and filling her up with liquid. And, you know, and they did that thing where they took daddy and I to the room where the door shuts, you know, with the tissues. And I re- <laughs> it's not it's not a room you want to be in. No. And I, they were no. like, oh, can you sit down? I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to sit down. You know, though, Sophia was really amazing that day because they it really didn't end the day with a diagnosis. We really didn't know. So if you remember that, they told Mark, Daddy and I in the room, like, we can't find a uterus. And I couldn't tell you because I was like overcome. But Daddy told you. Mm. You remember? And then you said, I never thought I had one. Mm. You remember saying that? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, of course, you guys, I was so like verklempt. I literally leaned over. I was like crying tears on her face. And I'm like, I will have your baby for you. And she's like, I do not want your like dusty ass uterus. All right. Too much real housewives. That's all. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Sophia, do you mind if I ask what made you say I never thought I had one or I didn't think I had one? It's one of those things where I can't explain it. I don't know why, but. I think part of it was that I hadn't gotten my period yet. I was 13, which at least like biologically, like didn't really make a lot of sense because I should have gotten it a couple of years before. I mean, I know there's like not really a time. Were you like fully, did you have like breasts and pubic hair and widened mm -hmm. hips and everything and all that? Okay. I was just missing my period. And so then when it happened, I wasn't really that surprised by it. But I also think I was in shock too, like in the moment, because it's something that comes in waves even now, because it's, it's a condition that I have to deal with for the rest of my life. And it's going to impact me differently at different times of my life. So in the moment when I was 13, all I could think of was, oh, okay, I won't have a period. Mm. I can wear white pants whenever I want. (laughs) It's a very healthy response. (laughs) Sophia, someday I'll tell you the story of me leaking my period all over my white jeans in the middle of Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah, it was classy. Yeah, it was about a year ago. It was about a year ago. <laughs> For real? Yeah. And I oh, lifted totally. my leg and was like, Nick, can you see the blood? Of course. Because like only a brother who wrote and created Big Mouth could you like lift your leg and be like, can you see the blood? Can I ask? So you did not get a diagnosis that day, but you did get a diagnosis. And because putting a name on something really helps. Sophia, do you want to share the name and just a little bit more background information for people who are curious? Yeah. So it's called MRKH, 
it's a bunch of doctors' names together that I don't know how to pronounce, but <laughs> that, but that's it shortened. And basically, it's the absence of any form of reproductive organs in specifically, though, I don't know the proper term for it. We go back and forth between biological female or genetic female. So we, I I tend to use biological female and Cara tends to use genetic female. And we're not even entirely sure if we're still even landing on the right terminology. So you feel whatever you feel comfortable. You use whatever feels comfortable. So it's the absence of reproductive organs in biologically female people. So that can be anywhere from missing a uterus to ovaries to fallopian tubes to not having a vaginal tract and not having a fully formed vagina in general also. So there's a wide like range that it covers. It also affects other parts of the body. So I only have one kidney, for instance. And just to be super clear, because we always talk about the biology on this podcast. So for people who have MRKH and have ovaries, your ovaries produce your estrogen. And so that is why everything on the outside can look like it's progressing through puberty exactly as predicted, right? You get breast development and your hips start to widen and all these external features start to appear because you're making all this estrogen in your body. So if you didn't have ovaries, that would look different on the outside as someone goes through puberty. Mm-hmm. And like part of the reasons we're so lucky and Sophia can talk about, we've gone to a bunch of MRKH groups. I've met a ton of moms. She knows a ton of young women. We're in Washington, DC, and we were hooked up with the next day, one of the number one people in gynecology, pediatrics. Yeah. Like, So our window of trauma, like open and shut because we were immediately, and she found both of her ovaries in a five and a half hour MRI that she was in that tube. So loud in that MRI scan. Are you serious? She asked me to stay in the room with her and like two hours in, I'm like, I'm such a good mom. Three hours. I'm like, can I, can I go? I, I feel like you're watching Harry Potter now. Can I go get a cup of coffee? <laughs> you still have a headache from the sound of the Wait, thud. Sophia, you're my hero. Holy cow. I was in one for 10 minutes and I was like, get me out. And I hate this music. That's incredible. So it took them five and a half hours to find your ovaries. And just map out all of her other organs. Okay. Yeah. And Carr said earlier, often when people get the diagnosis, it like makes everything feel better. Did you feel that way? Like when you got the diagnosis and you had just that very small window, was that reassuring? Was that helpful? Did it just open a million more questions? Like how did that feel for you both? For me, it was reassuring because I was a little confused as to why I hadn't gotten my period yet. Mm -hmm. So that was a very clear explanation as to why I didn't have it. It did also make me a little nervous when I first found out because one of my first thoughts was how am I going to have kids? Because Mm -hmm. I can have kids, but I can never carry. Well, never say never because you can have uterine transplants, but I will probably never carry my own kids. So it, it raised a lot of questions and anxiety there about that because that's a 
huge thing that I don't have to deal with now. But it was one of the first things that I thought. It's a lot to process. It's a lot to come at you at once. Yeah, it was organs missing, infertility, not being like your group at 13, right? It was a lot. And again, there's a really big meeting in Boston. And Sophia, you can say how it felt for you. But as we've been going to those, I mean, COVID ruins everything per usual. But it was also illuminating to see other people's stories and trauma. Mm -hmm. And even in how hard it was for Sophia, I, as a mother, felt really grateful compared to what some of these other girls have been through. I mean, just total torture, medical torture. So yeah, it was a lot. Yeah. And I will say as someone who has worked in the medical field for a long time, you can imagine that the field of pediatric gynecology is not a huge one, right? So it's a very small group of people who know a lot about things that some are very rare and some are more common than you might think, but it's not this huge booming corner of pediatric medicine. And what that often can mean is that the experience that you have before you get to a pediatric gynecologist can be very traumatizing because it's very hard for people to think outside of their boxes. And and this is not a box that a ton of pediatricians or internists or any other practicing doctors really, it's not a common box. And so the experience you had, as you described, was very limited, but you, you hit that many times, right? And it sounds like you've met a lot of people over the years who were probably faced a lot more of that as their path to diagnosis was much slower and longer. And that's very, very tricky. And something that I think in medicine, we're always trying to figure out where can we do better? That is a place we can do better. Mm -hmm. Sophia, can I ask you when you talk about it and in the MRK community, do people refer to it as a condition a disability? Like what is the language around this experience? I normally refer to it as a condition. It can be I possibly considered an invisible disability of sorts, but I normally and other people that I've met have normally referred to it as a condition. And what is it like for you to be in this community of other people who are, I mean, Megan talked about it from a parenting side of like gratitude, right? Because so often in life, other people actually have it harder and worse. What is your experience like in that community of people? It's been extremely welcoming and it has been an amazing outlet and like resource for me. I've met so many amazing young women through it that I talk to regularly. and. It's just been a great place because, I mean, well, when I started going, I was the youngest there by, in most cases, like five years at least. And everyone was really shocked when they saw me and they were like, you're like a kid. And I'm like, mm-hmm, hi. <laughs> so it's been interesting because I've met women who are like my mom's age who have kids, which is amazing to see because it's something that. I can look forward to, and I know that can happen. It's just a great role model for me. But then I also know young women who are my age or a couple of years older who are in college and have gone through some of the same things I have. So it's been really great. 
And just the why you are the youngest, I'm guessing, tell me if I've got this right, is that while the average age of getting a first period is around 12 and a half, it's still considered normal not to get your first period until you're 16. So most people are not picked up the way you're picked up, right? Most people don't get their period by the time they're 16. And then they go through this very slow, long process of trying to figure it out. And again, no one's thinking about this. And so my guess is the average age of diagnosis is probably in the very older teens, or for some people, it could even be beyond 20. Does that sound right? Yeah. There's some people who in other countries don't find out that they have MRKH until they're fully married and trying to have kids. So Mm. yeah. That's amazing. So the biggest question that we have for you comes from the perspective of being people who teach both kids and adults about puberty and the path through puberty. And obviously, you know, talking about periods is a very big part of the conversation around puberty. Help us. How should we teach it differently or approach the subject differently? so that we can be thoughtful and inclusive of the people who, when they're in fourth or fifth grade, have no idea what might be coming when they're in eighth or 10th or 12th grade? It's a really good question. Um, I think the biggest thing you can do is not assume and just making sure that everything isn't so binary because no one is the same, regardless of if you have all of your reproductive organs or not. No one is the same and no two bodies are the same and everyone's going to go through puberty differently. So I think that just not assuming and obviously still teaching everyone about periods, but just saying there are going to be some people who identify as female who don't get periods for any form of reason. So I think that's my biggest piece of advice. Sophia, were there parts of your puberty that felt totally normal. I'm like, I don't feel different. Did everything change when you got your diagnosis? Was there stuff that still felt like, yeah, I'm still a 13, 14, 15 year old girl, or has it all been colored? Cause it's tempting for someone to hear your incredible story and assume like, oh, well then she must think about it every second of the day and it must color every experience. But the reality is kids are much more resilient and able to normalize better than the adults who are all falling apart everywhere around you. So tell us a little (laughs) bit about like how it impacted you in the following years. There were some moments when it would hit me, especially hard during my health classes, sometimes when we would discuss it, or if some of my friends were talking about their periods or if they needed a pad or a tampon or something like that. And I was always just like, Okay. <laughs> uh, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and I've never really felt super like left out because of it or anything. There are some times when I'm like, oh, I wish I could relate a little bit, but then I'm like, mm, not entirely. But no, there's definitely been some times, or in like my biology classes, sometimes I'll be like, oh, this is interesting, like figuring out how it works and putting all of the pieces together. Mm-hmm. But it's only really hit me in those forms of classes and things like that. But it's not something I think about regularly. 
After we've been Zooming all day, we both hit the same wall. We forgot about dealing with dinner. But given what we do for a living, we know the importance of feeding ourselves and our families well. And we want it to be yummy. So we're psyched to have found Factor. Factor's chef-created, ready-to-eat meals show up at our front doors. With over 35 different options a week to choose from, Cara goes vegan and veggie while I opt for a whole variety since I have so many kids. Two-minute prep gets us restaurant-quality full meals, snacks, and smoothies. And Factor is less expensive than takeout. And because flexibility is key, you can choose anywhere from 6 to 18 meals per week, and you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Factor meals require no prepping, no cooking, and no cleanup. Our kids are thrilled by the lack of dishes. So get started today and have a week of meals ready to go, taking the dinner prep pressure off. Head to factormeals.com slash puberty50. Use the code puberty50 to get 50% off. That's code puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50. We know it's really tough when a kid's skin is breaking out for the first time or the hundredth time. But now there's an effective product that can help. It's called Phyla, and it's clinically proven to fix acne by targeting the bad bacteria on the skin without eliminating all the good bacteria. This rebalances the skin's microbiome, treating existing breakouts and preventing new ones. Phyla's active ingredient is a probiotic isolated from the skin of healthy, acne-free individuals. This means Phyla can stop acne before it starts by eliminating bacteria in the pores without irritating or drying skin. And Phyla is safe for kids of all ages. Dermatologists recommend this easy three-step system. Just cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. My own kids actually use this product. They love it because it works so well. Get 25% off your first order of Phyla with the code PUBERTY. Go to phylabiotics.com and type in the code PUBERTY at checkout. Link is in the show notes to get started. At all, I mean, if I see a baby, sometimes I might get sad. And like that happens sometimes is like, I'll see a, a child or I'll see like a mom, like pushing their baby in a stroller. And I'm like, oh, hmm. Or I'll see like a TikTok or something of a woman discussing her like pregnancy of all those different things. I'm like, oh, wow, that's cute. That must be nice. But that's it, really. I will say, too, a challenge has been for us tracking her cycles because she still has a cycle. So she will have all these symptoms of PMS and hormonal fatigue and all these things. And then she doesn't have, I mean, you know, we complain about it, but it's very kind of, there's an edifying experience when you bleed. You're like, oh, ah, got it. Okay. And she doesn't have that. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so like we've had to use apps like Clue to track her other symptoms, but even the apps, it's all based on blood. Mm. It's all based on blood. Right. Is that what took you to the emergency room in the first place? Was it connected? Was she ovulating? And was there pain we from still, ovulation? We it still was a, don't know. It was a cyst. 
It was they ovarian think, cyst. They, they, think. they think we still aren't a hundred percent sure. We probably never will be, but what they think it was, was a cyst that had ruptured mm, because so my painful. eggs have nowhere to go. Yeah. For the record, hideously painful. Yeah. It's not fun. And it happens. I have a similar pain every couple of months too, which has been interesting. So we've been trying to track that because again, we don't really entirely know what it is. I was going to ask you if you know the word middle schmertz. Do you know the word middle schmertz? It's my favorite word. I mean, it doesn't feel good. Sophia, can you explain to our listeners what middle schmertz is? I recognize it, but I don't like entirely know. <laughs> I don't want to like do it. You just love, it sounds like it should be a character in a show. One day. Cara, do you... Big mouth. I know. Actually, I I need to talk to Nick about that. Cara, do you want to explain to our listeners what middle schmertz is? So middle schmertz is the sensation that people feel when they're ovulating. And it can be a little twinge or a little pinch or a little ping. But if you've developed a cyst around the ovulating egg, then feels much, much, much more painful. And that's, the, you know, so the spectrum of middle schmertz ends and an ovarian cyst begins. It's sort of a whole continuum of feelings, but it's a very sort of sharp, twingy pain. Most people would describe it as, or a sensation. And it's, it's when you ovulate. And you um, ovulate, you alternate sides. So on yeah. one month, you get it on one side, one ovary. And if you have two ovaries and the other month, you get it on the other side. Mm-hmm. And fun fact, as you enter middle age, your, at least in my experience, your middle schmerz gets stronger. And so you're like, oh, okay, to this month, I'm ovulating on the right. How exciting. It's just one long, continuous stream of what the hell is a happening. Great fun. <laughs> okay. So Megan, you go through this process with Sophia and you're getting this diagnosis and you have two other daughters. Yeah. What was your feeling there? Did you want to See who else in your house had various organs? Did were you counseled to do that, to not do that? Yeah, luckily, so we have Dr. Gomez Lobo, and I was like, Do my daughters have this syndrome or this condition? She's like, mm, No, probably not. Don't worry about it. So okay. Okay. <laughs> right. And I was like, okay, I'm not. I did my own research and we looked and they really don't know why it happens. They They don't think it's genetic, but they don't know. They really don't know, which is why we just, Sophia had a big visit in January, right? So Mm -hmm. at NIH, so that we can be part of a study because it's just that we need more studies. So, you know, as soon as we got home and kind of got, you know, our legs under us, we just told everyone, like we told our little sisters who were, uh, how old were they? 10 and seven. We told her grandparents. We told her uncles. We told her cousins just so that we had a community of people because we live very close to my husband's side. We live directly next door to my mother-in-law. Just take that in for what that means. <laughs> take a moment. <laughs> mm-hmm. Who, you know, her entire thing around being a woman is having kids. So there was a lot of anxiety around, like, how is she going to receive mm. Sophia? How is this? She's been amazing considering, you know, this kind of old school immigrant, like the purpose of women and childbearing vibe. And then 
you know, Dr. Gomez Lobo was very specific that this is Sophia's body, Sophia's life. She tells who she wants to tell. Like we didn't tell the family without Sophia saying, okay. And we've just let her take the lead. Middle school and then high school friendships are, are weird. So we just let her figure out who she feels safe with, when and how. And, you know, luckily, this is the good part of social media that she has all these connections with all these young women all over the world okay. who know how they know how each other feels. It feels like what you do for a living. So, I mean, you're not just a parenting coach. You're like on the all-star team of parenting coaches. You're here. the parenting coach. <laughs> like capital T. Capital T. You can't see Megan right now, but she's flipping her hair with she's great confidence. Her, hair. her beautiful um, hair to go along with her fantastic makeup. It feels like you had some tools in your toolbox, shall we say, for <laughs> handling this. Do you have advice for other parents whose kids are experiencing puberty in a non-traditional way? Oh, you know, I just, I was very much just a mom for all of that. Very much just a mom. That's what I always say. say, You know, it's right. And then my kids are like, and that's why you missed my pneumonia. And I'm like, yes, because I was just the mom. (laughs) Totally, (laughs) totally. Um, Luckily, Mark, Sophia's father, is very even keeled and steady and very calm, which I'm many things, but not always all of those. And he was very participatory and supportive of Sophia. There's like no secrets in the house. There's no confusion. Even though Sophia's littlest sister will still be like, so are you, do you like, are you, are you going to get your period? And Sophia's still like, no, still no. Still no. (laughs) We're still coming around to that. Um, Well, you should make that t-shirt Sophia and you can just (laughs) pull up your flannel every time and be like, here you go. not happening. So I didn't fall back on too much of my parent coach training, except that I knew that it wasn't mine. It wasn't mine, right? And it was especially my job to not place my fears and worries and insecurities and speculations and anxiety on her shoulders, right? So of course, you know, like in my lower moments, I'm like, we're going to start an account. We're going to freeze your eggs next year. 14-year-old eggs. You're going to have the best fucking kid. <laughs> you went into solve mode. You went into solve mode, which is exactly totally. what you would tell other right. parents not to do, but you right. did it in your head. Of course. And to her face occasionally. Right? Like, <laughs> Let's throw some money at this, okay? I let my better angels get a grip and I let her figure this out. And my job is to walk with her. Megan, I'm going to ask you a question which you can choose not to answer. But I know in my house, when things don't go as we might have hoped with our kids, my husband and I often feel a lot of guilt and a lot of responsibility that it's like, it's our fault. And I'm wondering if that went through your mind at all. Oh, of course. As soon as the diagnosis happened, I'm like, she had a disappearing twin. Did the twin take her ovary? Right. Mm. And the doctors were like, nope, nope, there's a lot of disappearing twins. Like that happens so often, in fact, that they don't even, right? It's only mm-hmm. in modern times that we know about it because mm-hmm. you get right. a little bit of spot of blood. Oh, I absolutely was like, okay, I wasn't a drug addict, but I was smoking cigarettes. Like 
I tried to figure out certainly what went wrong, definitely on my end. They pretty quickly shut it down. And did that help? Did that work yes. for you? Okay. Yes, it did. I was able to place it into a, she was made whole and perfect the way she is, no matter what. I went there pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I, of course, kind of got a little like, did I? But then I was like, even if I did, she's here and whole and perfect, exactly the way she is. So I quickly, and my husband doesn't like tolerate a lot of the blame stuff, which I'm like, in my Irish Catholic, I'm like, but that's breathing. You know, so <laughs> Well, and why are we on things? this earth? <laughs> well, you know, in, in medicine, there are there really are two camps of explanation. Some things are caused by, we know, you know, take this drug, this will happen. Or, you know, exposure to the sun, you will get wrinkles and maybe melanoma. You know, it's like very path. But there's so much in medicine that is just serendipity. And it just is what it is. And it's either good luck or it's bad luck, or it's just, it just is. And I think that it's hard to get there, especially when the naming of something feels like such a relief. It does feel like a relief to know what you have and to be able to say, there's a community of people out there for me who I can connect with because I have a name, but then to not have a cause feels there's kind Mm. of two sides of one coin, but that is, Mm. it's probably the more common sort of experience in, in medicine is we can name it and we can describe it, but we can't necessarily say why and getting good with that. It's 90% of the game. And we're definitely in a place just like, cause we went to NIH to meet our doctor there. They're really trying to figure it out right. still. It's really only now that a lot of women feel safe coming forward. And in a lot of countries, it's not safe to be a woman who can't have kids, it's still because puberty and, and bleeding is still enshrouded in secrecy and shame. It's just another layer, right? But I think Sophia's generation, thank God, is just a little more like, you know, this is what it is, right? Less shame. How incredible. You're damned if you do bleed and you're damned if you don't. I mean... <laughs> What is that, that this is the world we, we live in? You know? Sophia, can I ask you, with your mother sitting here with us, we're all staring at each other on the screen. <laughs> Megan just got really Megan's close, in a close to up. the screen. <laughs> what is one thing your parents did really, really well? And what is one thing you wish your parents had done differently as you went and are still on this journey? One thing I think they did really well was explaining puberty to us from, or at least my sisters and I, a very like medical standpoint. They got us the books that clearly showed all of the organs and how everything works. They didn't say like, oh, here's Gigi. She got dropped off by a stork. Here you go. (laughs) They, I mean, they didn't like fully explain it, but they told us what occurred and how it occurs. And so I appreciate that because it's important to know those things. And then one thing I think they could have done better, I feel like the way that we were taught about it was very binary, was very like man and woman. And I'm 18. So when they taught me this, it was a while ago. And times are very different now when it comes to what we view as a normal relationship or what people are supposed to look like. 
and how they're supposed to identify. So I don't like blame them for it or anything. But if I were to teach like my kids, or at least when we talk about sexual education in my school, we also discuss like homosexual relationships and like things like that. And obviously, like my parents couldn't have known that I would have a girlfriend now. And then they couldn't have known like all those things. But that is one thing that I think could have done a little bit better. But yeah, I mean, I think inclusivity is something that totally. our generation is learning. And frankly, you all are teachers and you know more than we do and you're more comfortable with it than we are. And you are our guides at it. And, you know, people say, well, how do I talk? How do we talk to our kids about gender or sexual preference? And I was like, I would start by asking your kids how they talk about it because it's amazing at what a young age kids are super comfortable with different gender identities, different sexual identities. And what I love about this episode and talking to you is that the inclusivity can actually be an even bigger tent and being aware of people's biological experiences and how those inform their emotional experiences, their romantic experience, all of those things. So I'm really grateful to you for helping us widen our tent even, even more. Megan, one thing you said connects into this directly. You talked about the technology and sort of how we only know certain things because we now see them because of ultrasound, because of MRI, because of PET scans. And that is helping shift what we call typical or normal. So now we understand that there are all these different ways that you can look on the inside that a generation ago wasn't clear. No one really knew. And so it's time that the literature catches up, right? It's Mm -hmm. time that the textbooks catch up so that that spectrum is also taught. Yeah. So Via, I'm really glad you brought it up because, you know, I'm 46. Nobody talked to me about like heterosexual sex, let alone like, so my generation talking to your generation about homosexual sex, (laughs) it's just like, yeah. I mean, we might as well just read to you straight from a pamphlet, right? Not that the attempt shouldn't be made, right? So I'm a big, big advocate of parents being just messy with it and trying and showing up and being authentically like, here I am. But you're so right. Even when I started talking to you 100,000 years ago, it was still even all that much more hetero. It's wild. I'm looking up. So the frequency of MRKH is 1 in 4,500, which is not It is rare. not rare. It <laughs> is. And before There's you, a lot of women walking around without uterus. Yes. Before we pressed record on this podcast, I said to Vanessa what you, Sophia, said about 10 minutes later, which is, I, as a doctor, have never seen a case that I know of. And so that number, one in 4,500, because I looked it up too, floored me. And I think there are two parts to the fact that most doctors don't know about it. One is pediatricians often miss it because it's not picked up until kids have moved on beyond their practice. I also think that, frankly, the world of social media and broader communication is going to change the fact that doctors don't know about it because one in 4,500 happens. That's not uncommon. That's a lot of people right here in Washington, Mm D.C. 
when we went to those, her first pediatrician visit after we got the diagnosis, we have a very young woman um, who's just blonde and bubbly and sweet. And Sophia, I think you told her. I don't know if you told her, or I told her. And she goes, oh, yeah, MRKH. Uh-huh. Are you seeing Dr. Gomez Lobo? And Sophia's like, yeah. She's like, great. I know all about it. That recognition, Amazing. literally, I'm sure I started crying again. Yeah. Just, like hit it. But it was like, he said, like, yeah, you were like, completely crying again. <laughs> um, being seen mm-hmm. and not having to re-explain your condition to another adult was like, ah. Oh. A relief. And she was like, sure, great. It was a miracle. Amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. So yeah. we like to close our podcast with a practical puberty takeaway. It's not like the hottest, sexiest term we could come up with. It's like very on the nose. But maybe someone who's 18 could rebrand it I know, for us. Sophia, maybe you can help us. <laughs> but what I'd love to do is ask Sophia and you, Megan, essentially like a piece of advice or some guidance that you would give to folks out there listening to this about your experience or what you would wish for people in the world to know or to understand or to put into practice as a, as a trusted adult. Cara and I will go first because we don't want to put you on the spot any more than we already have. So I will say that my takeaway is that inclusivity is about more than just gender identity sexual preference, that there are all sorts of things that are is going on for people that we cannot see and we don't know about and to approach everyone with grace and openness and rather than kind of putting people into boxes. So that, and you taught me that, Sophia. So thank you. And I'll, I'll say, because Vanessa took mine, so I'll go with my <laughs> second choice. That's why I went first. <laughs> she, always, she always takes mine. I think as I was thinking about this conversation before we had it, I was wondering if it was going to bring up any anxiety, right? Because sometimes talking about these things and talking about what you think is going to happen to a body and then what does or doesn't happen, it's anxiety provoking. And one of the things that this conversation has reminded me is the importance of not shying away from talking about something because you're afraid that you're going to feel a little anxious or that the person who's describing their experience is going to feel a little anxious. That's how we all move the needle. So I thank you, Sophia, for sharing, because I think what you have done is for sure changed my approach to conversations about what it might be like to go through puberty in a way that is a little bit different than the textbooks teach. And my guess is every single person who listens to this will feel the same way. You know, life goes on and it is a multi-layered thing that hits at different ages. So to be ready for different levels of like loss and then kind of recalibration and loss and recalibration, but that if you can live with it and make connections and get good information, it's actually been very edifying to watch her it grew her up maybe a little too fast, but Sophia has a very unique perspective because of this, right? Like just a 
different way of seeing the world, a different level of empathy, a different, I don't know, I'm going to cry. I'm <laughs> I always cry. Don't worry. Cry. It's great. <laughs> so I'm just very proud of her. <laughs> That's beautiful. Okay. My takeaway would probably be, I guess this goes for parents too. Anyone who's ever dealing with puberty ever, just to be kind to yourself and not to be too hard on everything that you're going through because puberty is a really stressful time and it's long and (laughs) it cannot be fun. There's great things about it, but there's also really stressful and hard things about it. And just to be kind to yourself and to take a step back and say, it's okay. There's a lot of things going on everywhere in your body and that's okay. You know, regardless of what organs you have, what organs you don't, it's, it's hard no matter what. So, and just to be kind to yourself and that goes for parents too, because it's hard on all fronts. So. Because parents grew up all the time and we (laughs) blame ourselves all the time. Yes. Three girls in the house. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Good job. Sophia, you you are just a wonderful person and we're so grateful and super brave to come and talk about this with us. And thank you for teaching us and helping us know a little more about what the world of puberty looks like for different people. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at the puberty podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myumla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.